baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. yes. Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and following a very productive and very festive Thanksgiving, it is time to dive into the hot stove as we have turned the calendar page from the month of November to the month of December. And of course, that means the hot stove should really be percolating as we head towards San Diego and the winter meetings, which are awaiting beginning on Sunday night. I'm going to be flying out there and looking forward to bringing you all kinds of fun coverage on the Braves Radio Network and 680 The Fan and of course right here on from the diamond very much looking forward to jumping on a plane and heading out to the west coast for a week of course we have a lot of braves news to talk about on this episode of the show as atlanta continued to stay busy this winter signing yet another free agent plugging yet another hole as cole hamels the longtime philadelphia philly agreed to a one-year deal with the braves we'll talk about that we'll hear from cole hamels we'll also hear from general manager alex anthopoulos on that move and what's to come perhaps beginning as soon as the winter meetings out in san diego this coming week And we'll be turning our focus to what's happening across the rest of Major League Baseball as I welcome my friend Bill Rowland into the show a little bit later. And we bring back something that was a big part of my podcast over the first couple of three years and hopefully will be a big part moving forward. And that is the starting nine. It'll be nine of the biggest stories from all across baseball from that week as we really take a look at the big stories across the rest of baseball and size up all the rumors, news, and hot stove fun for you right here on From the Diamond. Of course, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews, always appreciated. Keep those coming, please. And be sure to follow along on social media. On Twitter, you can find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond, no underscore. And at Grant McCauley, you can find me there. And everything, every episode of the show and any and all articles and other fun stuff I do from the diamond.com is where you can find it. So let's jump into the week that was for the Braves. It was a pretty productive one on the free agent front yet again, as the Braves brought another new face to town, agreeing to a one-year $18 million deal with 36-year-old lefty Cole Hamels, who had been pitching for the Cubs the last year and a half, Rangers prior to that, but I think most Braves fans remember him as a member of the Philadelphia Phillies, including a team that won the World Series back in 2008. And Cole Hamels, he was the MVP of that series. So a left-hander who's got a lot of great credentials and has got a lot of good numbers in his career that has made him one of the best lefties in baseball over the past decade and a half. And now he's going to be bringing that to Atlanta. Last year, 7-7, 381 ERA in 27 starts. He was very good in the first half of the year. Ended up battling an oblique injury. It was not as good to close things out, but... For Cole Hamels, feels healthy and ready to go, ready to contribute to the Braves in a big-time way. And for Atlanta, there was at least one opening in this starting rotation, I think, that needed to be handled, whether that was by free agency or trade. A lot of talk about bringing in a Madison Bumgarner, perhaps a Zach Wheeler. Of course, Wheeler's now off the market. He's a member of the Phillies. But be that as it may, the Braves needed to make a deal to bring a pitcher who could provide some continuity and some experience to the rotation, and they've done that. Cole Hamels is their man And if you look at what the Braves have done thus far this winter, it's been pretty impressive on the free agent front and not something we've seen in quite some time. Atlanta has now committed just under $100 million in signings this winter. They brought back Tyler Flowers and Nick Markakis, as well as Darren O'Day and Chris Martin. And then the big free agent signing, Will Smith, another free agent signing, getting catcher Travis Darnot, and now Hamels, as the Braves have signed seven players this winter and been the busiest of all 30 clubs thus far identifying some key needs, signing some pieces that they already knew that had already been in place, and bringing in some new pieces to hopefully make the 2020 club that much better. But of course, there's still work to be done, whether that's in the outfield or more specifically, where is Josh Donaldson going to end up and will he be the third baseman for the Braves 
moving forward? That's a huge question the Braves still have to answer, and one we'll be talking about quite a bit right here on From the Diamond as we continue throughout the winter. But let's focus on the Cole Hamels signing. In fact, let's hear from Cole Hamels on what brought him to Atlanta and how long he's had his eye on the Braves and getting this opportunity to play for this team. I had a conversation with my agent, and you know we were, were open to any sort of possibility, but truthfully... When it really came down to it, I wanted to play on a contender. You know, it's something where I was very familiar with the Braves, obviously watched them in the postseason and seen what they've been able to create. So I've always been following them in hopes of maybe having an opportunity to pitch with some of those guys because they have such good young talent. And I know at my stage in my career, for what I could provide, could be beneficial. So they were about one of the six teams that I was really, really following and really rooting for, and it was great to be able to make this happen. So the Braves make a move with a one-year deal with Hamels, who was looking forward to pitching for a contender and will be doing just that in Atlanta, a team that has won the division each of the past two years. As for what the Braves were looking for with a vacancy in their starting rotation that had been filled by Dallas Keuchel, who signed it midseason last year and is now a free agent, Alex Anthopoulos talked about what Cole Hamels brings to the table and why they're excited to have him join the Brave staff in 2020. We're signing Cole first and foremost because we think he's going to help us win a lot of games, get back to the postseason, and hopefully win a World Series. So, But, look, there's added value in the fact that just from what we know of the person, who he is, the example he sets, the way he goes about it, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, in whatever form that, that's going to show up as, I think, and it doesn't have to be having meetings or being vocal just by being himself and working and so on. I think Max Fried will get better seeing him being around him. I think Soroka will get better. I've just seen that over the years. Players can make other players a lot better just in the way they go about things. So, uh, you know, how you quantify that is hard, but I do think there's real value to that, especially when we're building a young core that we hope is contending for years to come. Hamill spent the first 10 years of his career with the Philadelphia Phillies, a club that won plenty of division titles. So coming back to the National League East is something that should be kind of familiar for him. He'll also be familiar with this Braves team because he's been keeping up with what exactly they've been doing the last couple of years as many of the young players and some of the talented veterans have turned Atlanta from a rebuilding club of a few years to a team with back-to-back division titles. Hamels discussed keeping tabs on Atlanta and helping make his decision that much easier. They're on the front page and just energy and how they never give up. You know, Freeman, I've faced him numerous times. You know, he never gives in, and, and he's starting to really show that to a lot of those hitters, and that's what you want to know because with whatever I can do out on the mound, you want to know that if, if you do make that mistake and give up that run, that the guys are going to come and answer back because that's just a really good team mentality and you can see it in those guys. They never lose doubt, and that's what you want to be around. One thing to keep in mind with adding another lefty in Cole Hamels is that the Braves could potentially have a starting five that would feature three left-handers. If we look at what's on paper right now, Max Fried would join Hamels, and Sean Newcomb, who spent significant time in the Braves' bullpen last year, well, they've already been talking about stretching him back out and giving him a chance to start in 2020, at least when the team heads into spring training. A lot of things can happen between now and then, but as far as having three lefties and their starting five, Alex Antopoulos discussed exactly what the approach was when trying to put together the starting rotation. Yeah, we're just looking for the best starters, right? Left, right, and it's nice when they're left-handed, but we're just looking to have the best starters, guys that are going to get the best results. So obviously we've got a lot of depth with some of the young arms, and hopefully some of those guys take a step and emerge the same way Soroka and Freak did last year. So we know all the names, and... They're going to have a chance to come into camp and get stretched out and compete, but we'll break with the best five, whether they're right-handed or left-handed. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Braves have now signed seven players and handed out just under $100 million in contracts over this winter. That's a pretty big departure for the Braves in recent years and also has made them the busiest club in baseball thus far in the winter. Given we have the rest of December and January as well as we head up to February when Braves pitchers and catchers report, but Alex Anthopoulos has been a very busy man, and that's something that he expected heading into this winter. It's just worked out that way. I do think a lot of the volume have been some of the returning players, you know, guys like Martin, Marcakis, Flowers, O'Day. I think that's certainly been a big part of it in terms of bringing outside signings, guys that weren't here. You've got Cole, Travis Darno, Will Smith. So, again, I know it seems like there's been a lot. I do think it's easier when players have been with you and they know – the organization, and it's just a matter of trying to work a contract out. I think it was going to be a matter of need regardless. We were going to have a lot of work to do to fill a lot of spots. 
With the Braves having signed a number of players to help them deal with needs behind the plate and the starting rotation and in the bullpen, it leaves a pretty big question still unanswered, and that is who's going to be hitting in the middle of the Braves' order or, if you prefer, who's going to be playing third base for the Braves in 2020 and beyond. Many people would like to see Josh Donaldson be that man, but the Braves still have some time to figure out how exactly they can put some thump in the middle of their order and continue what's already been a very busy winter for Alex Anthopoulos. You know, we didn't have an order to how we were going to go about doing some of these things. It's just as the opportunities present themselves, we've been able to get things done. So um, I think we've been pretty open. We still are going to explore third base. Uh, That hasn't changed. And then, you know, beyond that, we're just going to continue to look for opportunities where we think we can make the club better. Well, let's expand our discussion here on From the Diamond to include what else is going on across Major League Baseball because this is a great time to be a baseball fan. No, you don't get a game every day. You don't get to follow your team, look at the standings, and get all excited about October, at least not yet. But the hot stove is a season in and of itself, and I wanted to bring back something I used to do on the show uh, back in the early days, the infancy of the show, if you will, actually, for quite a few years. But we called it the starting nine. And the starting nine was an opportunity to cast a wide net, get some of the great stories happening across the game of baseball, and to help me get the starting nine back up and running here on From the Diamond. I want to welcome in my buddy Bill Rowland, who's going to help me out with this. Make sure you're following him on Twitter, at Bill Rowland. You can find him there. Bill, it's been a long time since we've gotten a chance to talk some baseball, but I'm really excited about this and really glad you're able to jump on the show and join me. Yeah, I appreciate you having me back on, Grant. Always good to talk baseball, whether it's December, January, October, doesn't matter. There's always something going on across MLB. No, there most definitely is. And, of course, we're uh, heading into the hot stove. This podcast will kind of be the uh, precursor to that, kind of get folks ready for it. Of course, we've talked a lot about the Braves in this episode and every episode uh, already, but Atlanta's been a very busy team throughout the hot stove season. But uh, a lot of your experience has been up covering a team that just won a pretty big series, and that would, of course, be the World Series and the Washington Nationals. How excited were you to see a lot of the guys that you covered and talked about for a number of years finally take that next big step and bring a trophy home to Washington? Yeah, it was it was nice, Grant, because you you look at the way they did it. I think was that made it more fun than anything else. Because in the years past, they'd been the favorites going in and could never get out of that first round. They had three or four uh, game five losses in the first round, or 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 just didn't play well and lost the teams that they thought they should beat. So to see them have to come back against Josh Hader in Milwaukee in the wild card game, to see them have to come back, you know, and, and beat the Dodgers. And when they throw Kershaw out there and to get to the series, to take on the Astros and then to take down the Astros winning all four games on the road. I mean, just an improbable run, but one that I think they had been building towards since 2012 when they made their first playoff appearance so yeah it was fun feel great for the guys and I mean it's just been a whirlwind around here and now they're trying to figure out what to do and the latest news just in the last 24 hours is that the learners have come out and said look we can't afford both Rendon and Steven Strasburg uh, going into next year so that's got a lot of Nats fans really nervous because they saw them let Bryce Harper walk last year and a lot of people are like you know what that's okay because we're going to save up and that means we're going to be able to re-sign Anthony Rendon. And now there's a possibility that they won't sign Rendon. So a lot of Nats fans, while they're still celebrating the World Series, are a little leery about how they're going to build this team going forward. I can imagine because uh, once you win that World Series, you get to celebrate it for a little while, then all of a sudden you got to figure out how to get back there, maybe do it again, maybe do it a couple of times. In the cases of some teams that have been uh, looking to not only win that World Series, but maybe create a dynasty, if you will, And those are pretty hard to come by, but the Nationals will have some big roster decisions to make. And all 30 teams are making their roster decisions right now. So with that in mind, let's jump in to the starting nine and lead things off with Garrett Cole, who met with the Yankees. But it still feels like to me that Southern California is going to be making a play. And there's a couple of clubs out there with some big money. The Dodgers, of course, the Angels, they could both make a bid here. Do you think the Yankees will break the bank and finally get Cole to come to the Bronx? I don't know if they'll end up getting Cole. They will break the bank. I expect him to get upwards of $250 million for his deal, wherever it may be. If the West Coast teams think the Dodgers, think the Angels, if they're willing to match or even come close to the money that the Yankees are offering, I think Cole will end up going out West. But if the Yankees are 10 to 15 to $20 million above the next best offer, then the AL East better watch out. It's going to be rough going for the next six, seven years with Garrett Cole there. Yeah, and Garrett Cole's turned in one of the greatest seasons by a starting pitcher in terms of just strikeouts. And I was talking to a buddy about this a couple of days ago because, no, 
Garrett Cole didn't set the record, the single season record for most strikeouts. But if you look at the year that Nolan Ryan struck out his 383 batters, Sandy Koufax struck out 382, and I believe Randy Johnson had a year not too long ago where he struck out 372 batters. All of those guys did it in substantially more innings than Garrett Cole did. So when you talk about historical precedent, as if Scott Boris needed something to really hang his hat on with Garrett Cole, he may have just put together the best season strikeout-wise by a starting pitcher in baseball history. And there's an awful lot of baseball history to look back on when you're looking at Garrett Cole, strikeouts, and how much money those strikeouts might net him. Yeah, and like I said, I think it goes north or at least gets close to $250 million, especially when you see some of the other money that's been given out to pitchers, and we'll get to one of them coming up here. But you look at Cole, and he was you know, good with the Pirates and had the one great year, and then that, that year right before he got traded, it was kind of like, well, is he or is he not going to be the guy that everybody expected him to be? He gets to Houston, and whether it's the Astros and the way that they take talk about spin rate and everything else and the way they handle their pitchers, whether that was the key or he just came into his own, he's been remarkable since he's gone to Houston. So I'm sure the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Angels, whoever it may be that he ends up going to, they're going to expect that they're getting that Garrett Cole and not the one that kind of struggled that last year in Pittsburgh. No, he looks like a completely different pitcher, the guy that I'm sure the Pirates were hoping he would become didn't happen in Pittsburgh, definitely happened in Houston, and Garrett Cole is in line for a big-time payday, whether that's from the New York Yankees, as you mentioned, the Dodgers, the Angels, or the vaunted mystery team, if somebody wants to jump in and has a couple <laughs> hundred million dollars to spare. Uh, so I think that if you're asking me, I would say that Garrett Cole is going to end up in pinstripes. I think the Yankees have wanted him for an awful long time, including drafting him way, way, way back before he decided to go the college route and ended up with the Pittsburgh Pirates. All right, let's get to a pitcher who did get his contract and his money. Zach Wheeler, five years, $118 million to the Phillies. So they steal him away from a divisional rival in the Mets, and he goes there. Ask this, though, Grant, is it too much money? $24 million on average for Zach Wheeler per year for a guy who is, you know, a couple years removed from Tommy John surgery. He looked really good the last couple years with the Mets, but is five years, 118 too much money? You know, we were talking about this last winter that the Phillies were going to go out and spend stupid money. And I know that that phrase, it brought a lot of different um, interpretations, if you will, as to what exactly it meant. But I don't necessarily think that any of the money they spent was stupid. They just knew that they were going to have to go out and outspend uh, their competition. They did so to get a Bryce Harper over there. They traded for JT Romuto. They made some other signings in uh, McCutcheon and Robertson that didn't work out so well. But this does feel like a move that the Phillies definitely had to make, and maybe they had to outbid a couple of other clubs to get this thing done because they, they're going to have a window like every other team has when it yep. comes to the talent they have on hand right now, and they need somebody to be in lockstep with Aaron Nola at the top of that rotation. And unfortunately for them, it's Jake Arrieta is not the guy he was in Chicago. So I think this is a move they had to make. Um, I definitely expected Wheeler to get that 18 to 20 million range, but 24 million is an awful lot for a pitcher who has been injured, who hasn't really had that signature season just yet that would make you think that he'd be that sought after. But I think this tells you a lot about what the market for starting pitchers is. If you can't afford a Garrett Cole and you can't afford a Steven Strasburg and those guys are going to break the bank, maybe Wheeler's your next best thing. And that's where the Phillies felt like they needed to go with this. Yeah, and you look at his numbers, the case per inning are there. Um, the only concern, the home runs were up this past season and going to a Phillies park that, you know, is a little bit more home run friendly. Maybe that's a concern as a fly ball pitcher. But let's be honest, there are a lot of guys now that after Tommy John surgery, and he missed two full years yeah. pretty much uh, after the Tommy John surgery, guys are bouncing back and pitching as well, if not better than they did before. You just mentioned Steven Strasburg. He is a perfect case to show that, that a couple years down the line, you don't see any ill effects from that. This is a great deal, I think, for other pitchers that are free agents right. right now. Because if Zach Wheeler's getting $24 million average per year, what is Steven Strasburg going to get? What is Garrett Cole going to get? Because if you're, again, Strasburg's agent, and you're looking at this and you're saying, wait a minute, you only want to give my client $27, $28 million per year? That's just $4 more million per year than Zach Wheeler? Are you out of your mind? This, to me throw Strasburg above $30 million, uh average value per season, I think, on his contract. I think that's what's coming because Zach Wheeler got $24 million per year. 
Well, Zach Wheeler sets a bar at a certain level and has had some success in his career. He's heading into his age 30 season. Meanwhile, a former Phillies pitcher is heading back to the National League East where he began his career and spent a decade with the Philadelphia Phillies, and that would be Cole Hamels, who signed a one-year $18 million deal with the Braves this week. Uh, Bill, does this take Atlanta out of the running for another certain lefty who's got some postseason experience and a World Series MVP and Madison Bumgarner? You know what? I don't know if it takes them out of the running, Grant, but I don't know that they necessarily need Madison Bumgarner. I think they have other things that are more impressing or more important needs, I should say, more pressing needs than having Madison Bumgarner. I think Sean Newcomb and the other youngsters that are there in Atlanta could step up as the fifth starter, and you should be more than uh, able to compete and win a division title and go deep into the playoffs if that's your fifth starter. To me, the cleanup spot, and we'll get to that a little bit later on here in the starting nine, is more of a concern than their number five starter. So I don't know if it takes him out of the running for him. I just don't know if he's as big a priority after signing Cole Hamels. And I think one of the things that Cole Hamels does with the one-year $18 million deal, and yeah, that's more than he might have gotten on a one-year pact with some of the other clubs and other offers. And it's rumored the Phillies offered him about half of that to come back. Hearing from Cole Hamels in his phone press conference a little bit earlier this week, he said there were really no substantial reunion talks about coming back to Philly. So uh, that's one of a handful of teams he was looking at. Braves stepped up, made a great impression. They got this deal done. And I think that he steps in and does a couple of things. He is Cole Hamels, which is a guy that in the course of his career has been a guy that you've been able to depend on. The Braves, of course, have built a pretty good bullpen. So you don't have to push Cole Hamels into that seven, eight inning pitcher that he might have used to be. But on top of that, having a guy with this kind of experience, these kind of credentials, and the ability to still go out there and compete at a high level, putting him with a Mike Soroka and a Max Fried and a Mike Fultonevich, there's a lot that can be learned, I think, in the same way that Dallas Keuchel was a really positive influence for the Braves' young pitchers. A lot that they can do both on the field and off to raise that level uh, from the 2019 team that was already very good to one that could be that much better with a Cole Hamels in the fray. Yeah, I think Hamels definitely helps Freed and all those other younger pitchers. He's not going to be the 200-inning, 200-strikeout guy he used to be, but they don't need him to be. He slots in there, three, number four, somewhere in there. He's going to provide them with that veteran leadership for all those young guys uh, that are there with Atlanta. So I think it's a, it's a great deal for Atlanta. I think it's a great deal for Cole Hamels. And, and again, if he's getting $18 million on a one-year deal, it just pushes everybody else's numbers all the way up. All right, we've been talking pitchers. we got to get to some sticks because you can't win if you don't score runs. And the Moose, Mike Moustaka, signed a four-year, $64 million deal with the Reds of all teams. And they say he's going to be playing second base for Cincinnati. Is that a good deal for the Reds? Is it a good deal for Moose? Four years, $64 million? What do you think? I'll definitely tell you it's a great deal for Mike Moustakis, who the last couple of years, free agency just has not been kind to him in terms of finding this multi-year contract despite 30-plus home runs, uh, despite being a, a pretty steady player uh, for much of his career, beginning you know early on some struggles kind of establishing himself. But by the time the Royals really came together, Moustakis was right in the middle of a winner in Kansas City and was a big reason why they, they got to the World Series in back-to-back years. So I think he's put up the numbers and the production and been part of some winning teams, both with the Royals and, of course, with the Brewers. I was fascinated to see that the Reds decided he's going to play second base. They, of course, have Eugenio Suarez at third base, who is an all-star and a big slugger in his own right. This is a powerful lineup. And, Bill, we've watched the Reds in the past build a team that can really utilize Great American Ballpark to the utmost and score a lot of runs. And the Reds really, I think, have one of the more underrated pitching staffs in the National League Central, if not the National League as well. So I like this move for both sides. Feels like a little bit of an overpay when you just look at the kind of deals Moustakis has been signing. But I don't necessarily think it was fair for him to have to settle the last couple of years considering how good he had been heading into free agency the last couple of times. Yeah, it's a great deal for him. And again, I think I'm right there with you. I think a lot of people didn't think that he would get the $64 million over four, probably more like 56 somewhere in that range over four years, but a great deal for him. I am surprised that the Reds want him to play second base. As you mentioned, they have Suarez over there at third, so they have that need. But he started at second base with Milwaukee until their third base became a disaster and they had to move him back. Yeah. And he was just about league average. He wasn't great at second. He wasn't awful 
Good bat, though, for second base. I mean, he's probably going to hit 30 to 35 home runs there in Cincinnati. Not too many second basemen are doing that around the league. So I think it is a good deal for them and for him and the Reds. And you talked about their pitching staff. We just mentioned Madison Bumgarner. Sneaky deal here. Cincinnati mm -hmm. goes after him and tries to solidify their for spot in the rotation with the lefty. I think it definitely would be a good deal for Cincinnati. And just one other thing on Moustakis as far as his move to second base, I know we get lost in a lot of the analytics and, and looking at especially defensive metrics to tell us how good a player is on that side of the ball. And while he may be league average, the bat I think makes up a lot for that in terms of his fielding at second base. But also yes. one of the things that people, I think it kind of gets lost a little bit in translation is how good of a teammate to step over and play a position that really was not one that he had played much, if at all, in his career prior to trying it out with Milwaukee. So to move over there and do it, it's a pretty unselfish move. Of course, it helps him net a big contract, so maybe that's a moot point. But I think it's a pretty good teammate to move from a primary position and play something else all in the name of winning and hopefully making the team better. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely agree. Well, the Moustakis signing probably doesn't mean much for Anthony Rendon's market, which is going to be robust, I think. There's going to be some teams out there looking to break the bank on him. It was already going to be a big-time deal to sign him. But what does Moustakis signing with Cincinnati do for, say, Josh Donaldson and the urgency of teams who are chasing after the former American League MVP, who now is going to be quite the fallback option, if you want to call him that, for any team that doesn't get Anthony Rendon, but additionally... Donaldson's a pretty good player in and of himself. Yeah, going back to when we were talking about Madison Bumgarner to Atlanta, and I said they had other needs, this is where their other need comes in. I think it makes the most sense for the Braves to go ahead and re-sign him. The question is, from what I've read, and, and I'm sure we've all seen all the different articles, that Donaldson's looking for probably four years. Are the Braves willing to go the four years? They have the payroll flexibility because a lot of their core talent is still very young. They have the uh, the lineup to be a contender, which is what Donaldson is looking for. I don't think Rendon's going to wait till February like Harper did, but I think Donaldson actually goes before Rendon because I don't think teams are going to want to wait around. I think Donaldson may get done maybe even before Christmas, and I think it's going to end up being Atlanta. Yeah, I think that the Braves know what they have in Josh Donaldson, and they'd love to have him back. And we've seen an interesting trend this winter, and it's something I talked about uh, as the show began with the money that the Braves have spent and the fact that they've identified needs and candidates to fill those needs, and they've gone out and gotten those deals done. Most recently, Cole Hamels. But, of course, they signed Travis Darno, They signed Will Smith. That was a big splash. And the Braves retained a number of players who helped them out last year and brought them back, the Marcakises and Flowers and uh, Darren O'Day and Chris Martin as well. So the Braves have put about $100 million into, you know, if you want to call it free agency and or re-signing their players and that is a little bit surprising when you consider uh, how tight the purse strings have felt at times. But Alex Anthopoulos has been very creative in finding ways to go out and make his club better. A lot of times that's kind of had to play out not just in the winter but also at the trade deadline. But the Donaldson thing feels like as much of a no-brainer as there possibly is. But you mentioned it, Bill. This is a guy that is going to get, I think, $25 million a year is probably what you're looking at for someone with his credentials and, of course, his talent. And what he proved last year, most importantly, maybe of all, is that he was healthy for the entire season. 155 games played, uh, approached career highs and home runs, and also was uh, back on that track. I think he was in Toronto in terms of being an on-base machine and playing above uh, average defense. So he's older than Rendon. He's older than Moustakis. But I think there's a lot of tread on the tire for Donaldson. I think three years could probably get this deal done, maybe a fourth-year vesting option of some sort. But I think the Moustakis deal definitely starts to push the balance back toward Donaldson being able to ask for and perhaps get a year more than teams were willing to give perhaps before Moustakis inked his deal with Cincinnati. Yeah, I think you're right there. And if you listen to the folks from the Donaldson camp, they talk about him uh, wanting to go to a contender. So that, to me, that means the Dodgers, the Braves, the Nationals. I don't think Texas necessarily fits into that. He's been linked to them a little bit, but opening that new ballpark, I don't know that they're necessarily ready to win. They'd be more inclined maybe to go after a guy like Rendon because they can give him a longer-term seven, eight years, and maybe they're ready to contend. Also, Rendon's a Texas guy, uh, went to Rice. So I think Donaldson, quite honestly, it could come down to if Rendon goes somewhere else, the Nats have to f fill in a gap now at third base, and it may be between the Braves and the Nats who's going to give him more money, who's going to give him more years. He could be the guy that maybe tips the balance between the NL East 
rivals, Atlanta and Washington. And wouldn't that be something if Rendon goes somewhere else and then these two teams have to battle each other uh, for Josh Donaldson uh, to, to kind of fill their gap and fill their need that they, that they have coming up. So yeah. that's the free agents. 40 players this past week. 40 players end up getting non-tendered grant that adds some intriguing names to the free agent market. There aren't any huge names necessarily. Maybe not a, a guy that's going to make or break your season. But who are you surprised that didn't get that non-tender this week? Well, one of the things I thought about non-tenders is, you know, there's a financial component that goes into it. But there's also a component, I think, of, of really how we're seeing rosters being managed these days. But I know that one guy that really surprised me that a club would kind of give up on him after what was an all-star level campaign. It's a guy you know pretty well as well and that's Blake Trinan who was closing for the Oakland Athletics he really was I think the best reliever in baseball in 2018 at the age of 30 come back at the age of 31 I just battled inconsistency all year long athletics didn't feel like they were going to be able to pay him the what eight or nine million dollars he was probably going to be due maybe more than that as a matter of fact as he continued through arbitration but I think there's going to be a lot of clubs that are interested to see if they can get Blake Trinan back on the track that he was in 2018 when he had a sub-1 ERA, pushing 40 saves, averaging over 11 punch-outs per nine, and his walks were under control. They weren't last year, but this guy's got the kind of arm talent that I think, Bill, some club's going to go out there and be very happy that they were able to get a Blake Trinan because the Athletics simply couldn't find the room for him on the payroll was what it looks like to me. Yeah, and that's always the case with Oakland, isn't it? It's about the payroll, and they don't want to take a chance on spending $9 million on a guy who had a close to a 5 ERA. Like you said, if he gets the walks under control, if he can get that sinker to stay down, then, yes, yeah, somebody's going to get a bargain. I don't know that he's going to get 9 or $10 million on the open market. just depends on how desperate teams are. For me, Domingo Santana in Seattle. A little bit surprised at this because – not because his productivity was so good. He was terrible at the end of last season, had the elbow issue, but because it wasn't going to cost Seattle that much money. He was under $2 million on the salary last year. I can't imagine he would have gotten anything close to six, seven, eight million. I think some team is going to take a shot that that elbow injury isn't a lingering problem with him. He's going to give him 200, uh, 270 average. He's going to hit 20 home runs. His outfield defense is a bit suspect, but he can play both corner spots. I think he might be a bargain if somebody gets him for, say, three and a half, four million million, $4 million. And this is a guy that's just coming out, out of his age 26 season, so it's not like he's somebody who's a 30-something that you just aren't really sure if there's really anything more than he's already shown you. But he's already played for three big league clubs because he came up with the Astros, of course spent his time with the Brewers, then got traded over to right. Seattle. Uh, where it seems like you know Jerry Depoto is going to make sure that everybody has come through Seattle at some point in a trade that he's going to pull off one winter. Uh, <laughs> but be that as it may, I mean, Santana is a talented hitter. Uh, you mentioned the defense might keep some National League clubs from really jumping all in on him, but this is the kind of fascinating players that weren't free agents heading into the offseason that clubs had to make that roster space or that salary cap, you know, you want to call it that, decision based on how they could project what this guy could give them in this particular year. And, uh, Bill, with the juice ball last year being in effect, maybe a 20-homer hitter isn't quite as rare as we felt like it would have been a few years ago because it felt like everybody in baseball was hitting 20 homers last year. No, that's a fair point, and, and he obviously falls into that category. But, again, I think you're right. It's going to have to be an American League team. I don't think a National League team where you can stash him at DH – uh, for certain aspects of the season. But I think an AL team that needs a little pop will take a chance on him, even if he only gets to 20. If he doesn't get to 25, 27, even if he only gets to 20 and he hits you know, 270 to 280, he gets on base at an okay clip. He's not a walk monster, but he's not a black hole there either. I think you're getting a pretty good deal for, again, as you said, a guy who's going to be 27 uh, this coming season and a guy who's not going to break the bank for you either. And we've been talking about money as far as what some of these players might be worth and what some of these teams have had to decide when they went to this non-tender uh, decision each and every winter. But a big decision that's needed to be made, I think, for a while is up in New York. And some big news off the field this week reported the Mets are going to have a new owner as the Mets are set to sell an 80% ownership stake to billionaire Steve Cohen. I think Mets fans may have a parade just to celebrate the fact that this will represent the end of the Wilpon era, and they have been calling for that for a while. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it's a five-year process. It's not just going to be you know an offseason, sign the deal like we saw in Kansas City, 
Uh, this is a five-year process, but Cohen is going to leave his mark. And I don't think, Grant, it's necessarily just on giving players big contracts, spending lavishly there. What I expect he's going to do is to revamp that front office and do things behind the scenes that people may not necessarily notice if you're just a casual fan. More more analytics, more performance-based metrics, your sleep patterns, your travel patterns, that kind of stuff. The back page newspaper awards are going to have a field day with this between them and the Yankees, if the back page newspaper wars still actually exist in this digital age. But I think this is going to be great for Mets fans. They're going to be thrilled with this. He is a longtime Mets fan going way back. His wife is a Mets fan. He is all in on this. He's wanted to own this team for a long time. It's only positive for the Mets. It's going to be a big time positive for them. And I would imagine that across the way over in the Bronx that the Yankees have to be thinking, well, this is not the greatest thing to happen for them because the Mets, at least a little bit, and from public perception a lot, uh, have not necessarily been the best-run club, certainly not the best-run club in that city. So for the Yankees, if the Mets do come in and make the improvements that you mentioned, and, oh, by the way, their owner is willing to spend to bring players to New York and and the big-time free agents start picking the Mets over the Yankees, which has not really been a thing too often in the history of those two clubs, it could be a really fascinating balance of power, whether it plays out on the back pages of the New York newspapers or it plays out right in front of our eyes each and every winter. And, of course, all season long to be the top team in that town. Yeah, if you read on Steve Cohen and the background and what he has done with his hedge fund and everything, he is all about taking the newest, latest, greatest technology and ideas and trying to implement them into his businesses. So I think he's going to do the same thing with the Mets. That's why I think, again, you're going to see them do more analytic analysis of players and not just, you know, odd base percentage in war and all that kind of stuff, but more along the lines of, hey, what kind of sleep do these guys need? What kind of diet do they need? He's going to do all of that because he does it with his hedge fund. Yeah, He actually gets his business people involved in that. You don't think he's going to do that with the Mets as well? I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun to watch because if it works, then Mets fans celebrate he's a genius if they don't work and guys are under a curfew and having to go to bed at 10 and doing all this thing and drinking weird shakes and everything else. How bad are the tabloids going to destroy the Mets if that's the way it goes? I don't expect it's going to go that way. I think they're going to win. I don't know that it necessarily leads to a World Series in the next five to 10 years, but they're not going to be irrelevant like they have been as of late. Well, we'll see if it turns into a reality show up there, but I think that Mets fans have to be looking at it in a lot of ways like this can't be any worse than the guys who've been running our team for the past uh, however long it's been for the Wilpons up there. It should be a good change, and and most changes, you got to give them a little bit of time to shake out, so we'll see what happens. Ah, he gets five years because that's how long it takes before he gets to 80%. But uh, in any case, number eight, the winter meetings. Always a time, no matter what team that you're rooting for, fans get excited about how they can build their team, how things are going to go. Last year was a little lackadaisical. This year seems like things are progressing a little bit quicker your biggest headline for the winter meetings coming up this week. I think that this is going to be the winter meetings where Garrett Cole is going to come off the board and be that top player. I don't think that all the top players may sign this uh, particular week down in San Diego, but I think Garrett Cole is going to make his decision, and I think he's going to end up in the Bronx because I think the Yankees want to send a loud and clear message about getting the best starting pitcher available and plugging him into a rotation and maybe that being the one missing piece they've needed for the last couple of years. Because, Bill, I also look back at the last decade for the Yankees. They had the most wins of any team in baseball. They did not make it to the World Series. The last decade that the Yankees did not make it to the World Series in any of the 10 years was the 19-teens, so pre-Babe Ruth. So I think they're going to want to send a big-time message, and you're not going to get an opportunity to land a Garrett Cole too terribly often. So... That's going to be my headline. I think Garrett Cole signs with the Yankees. How about you? You know what? I'm with you as far as a pitcher leading the headlines, but I think it's going to be Steven Strasburg because just kind of knowing that guy peripheral as I do, he is a guy that does not want to wait. He's not going to sit around until February. He wants to get it done so he'll know where he and his family are going to be. I don't know that it's going to be here in D.C. Again, as we've talked about earlier with the learners saying that they can't afford both Rendon and Strasburg. Although Strasburg did move his family to D.C., which was a huge thing because everybody thought he was going to go out west when he was a free agent, but he stayed here. I think Strasburg will get done either the 
the parameters of the deal will be announced at the winter meetings or his actual signing will be done at the winter meetings because he does not want to wait until January, February and, and have that angst of not knowing where he's going to be. Let me ask you this. I've felt like a dark horse candidate in, in all of this and one that may be off the radar and they may end up not being a factor at all. But the San Diego Padres went out and gave Manny Machado a big time deal last year. They've got a ton of young, controllable talent that's not costing them a whole lot of money. But the Hosmer signing, uh, to a lesser extent, and of course the Machado signing are pretty big. But I think the one piece that the Padres are missing is that pitcher with the pedigree of a Steven Strasburg to be at the front of that rotation. You mentioned him being a California guy as well. Do you think the Padres might be somebody or some a team to maybe keep an eye on to make a big move just when we expect him to go elsewhere? Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked to see San Diego make a play for him. Again, with the college out there, he's from out that way. Um, again, that's a lot of people thought it would be West Coast when it came up for his free agency. When he opted out, a lot of people thought that. But again, last offseason, he moved his family here. Now, maybe he didn't think that he was going to have the year that he had. He didn't, didn't necessarily think that the Nationals would win the World Series yeah. and that he would be opting out. He probably figured, hey, I've got another three or four years on my deal. I'm going to be in Washington. And then... 2019 happened, and all bets are off now. Would not be shocked to see San Diego be a player in this. I'm sure they'll make an offer, at least inquire what it would take. Ultimately, though, I'm not sure he ends up there. I would be stunned if he did not end up here in Washington because of the way Mike Rizzo puts his teams together. It's always about pitching. You think about Scherzer. You think about Patrick Corbin mm -hmm. and those signings. I would be shocked if they let Strasburg walk, unless the learners have said it's Rendon. Not Strasburg that we want, but if it's Mike Rizzo's choice, I bet he goes with the pitcher. I agree with you, and I think between the two, Strasburg seems the most likely to end up back in D.C. I think Rendon, the lure of other clubs and a big, big, big-time deal might be a little bit too much for him to pass up, and nor should he pass it up. He certainly earned it. Both those guys have, but the likelihood of two huge contracts ending up on one club in one winter, uh, as we've seen, that's a little bit easier said than done. Let's wrap things up with the Hall of Fame. Of course, this weekend uh, on Sunday night, the winter meetings will begin and the Hall of Fame's Modern Era Committee will announce the results of the voting to kick off the festivities on Sunday evening. I think longtime Tiger second baseman Lou Whitaker has the best chance of getting in, but this is a ballot that's got a ton of big names, including a former Brave that a lot of us are hoping gets that opportunity in Dale Murphy. Uh, Bill, as you look at this stacked ballot, a lot of big-time names and big-time contributors to the history of baseball with Marvin Miller included as well. Who do you think gets in on this ballot, if anyone? Yeah, you know what, Grant? I looked at this and as a longtime Red Sox fan. It warmed my heart to see Dwight Evans on there, but Dwight Evans is not a Hall of Famer. And you look at a lot of these names, there's a reason that the baseball writers didn't vote any of these guys in. I think Steve Garvey was one of the best first basemen of his generation. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I do think if anybody deserves to get in, it probably is Dale Murphy. Two-time MVP, seven-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, and oh yeah, five-time Gold Glove winner. Yeah. People don't remember how good he was because a lot of us were very young or not even alive when he was dominating National League pitching. I think Dale Murphy deserves to be in. I think it's a shame he didn't get voted in by the writers. I think they kind of uh, punished him for his late uh, career numbers and trying to finish it out in Colorado to get to the, you know, those round numbers that we all talk about. He finished, you know, his career with 398 home runs. He didn't get to 400. And I think they saw that play of him trying to play at age 37 in Colorado uh, as trying to get to that. So they maybe punished him a little bit, but Dale Murphy, in my opinion, deserves to be in over any of these other guys, but I would not be surprised or shocked or even disappointed if none of them got in. That's an interesting take because a lot of times, and I know I've talked to a whole bunch of people, uh, including Jay Jaffe, who, of course, wrote the Cooperstown case book, has been covering the Hall of Fame for a long time, came up with the JAWS system at the bottom of all those baseball reference pages that I look at. Yep. And I spent so much time because if you love the game and you've had a chance to you know, see the Hall of Fame in person, it really kind of drives home just how special the game is and how much there is to really – uh, to celebrate and commemorate and memorialize in a lot of cases for the guys that have made big-time contributions to the game. And I love the numbers as much as anything, but we've heard, and it's it's been hammered home for the last couple of decades, about the character clause and all of the things that you know some of these players during the PED era may or may not have done and what that means to the long-term history of the game. 
I think we're all exhausted of hearing about that. But if the character clause is being utilized even for the the smallest percent of people deciding who a Hall of Famer is and is not, shouldn't the character clause help you out? And in the case of Dale Murphy, I think there are very few ambassadors for the game of baseball who've done so better or more meticulously in a positive way than Dale Murphy has over the course of his playing career and, of course, uh, even after retirement. Dale's been a guy that's, I think, contributed a lot to the game in that point, uh, and I think that that should matter at least somewhat when you're looking at the overall case for a guy, and I think that that could be a bit of an X factor, if you will, but I don't know if uh, that's enough to really push him over the top with the panel that's going to be voting on this or has voted on this as of this week. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, at one point he started 740 consecutive games, which is almost unheard of nowadays in modern day baseball because everybody needs their rest and their off days and everything else. And as you mentioned, as far as character goes, legendary stories about Dale Murphy. You never saw him smoking, never saw him drinking, didn't swear in front of uh, reporters and in the clubhouse and everything else. So, yeah, if if you're going to want a guy to represent you and uh, and stand up and be a model citizen, you could do a lot worse than Dale Murphy. No, no doubt about it. Last uh, time I was out at the winter meetings was not this past uh, uh, week in, or not this past year in Las Vegas, but when Alan Trammell and when Jack Morris both got into the Hall of Fame through the Veterans Committee. I was always on the fence about Morris. If he got in, that's fine. If he didn't get in, I was fine with that too. Alan Trammell I looked at a lot differently because I felt like he was a really underrated player because of the era that he played in and the fact that Cal Ripken Jr. and Ozzie Smith seemed to be the shortstops of the 80s that you remember, but Trammell was busy winning World Series and MVP awards and was pretty darn good himself. But I can't think of Trammell without Whitaker. Uh, Where do you fall on Whitaker and his career and the fact that he was a one-and-done off the writer's ballot, which I think is one of the worst uh, or most egregious things, blights against the writers, to not at least have Lou Whitaker on there for a while for his case to really be considered and looked at? Yeah, and that's I agree with you there that I don't know that he should have been a one and done. I'm not quite as hardcore Whitaker should be in as most people, um, mainly because I just don't think his numbers add up to being a Hall of Famer. He's one of those guys that's right on the edge for me. Again, the 276 batting average, the 363 on base percentage. To me, he is the second base version of Dwight Evans. Dwight Evans was very, very good and probably in his time, one of the best defensive right fielders. And Whitaker was a very good second baseman defensively as well. Again, that double play combination with Trammell. But it just doesn't add up to me. There isn't one number that you look at on the back of his baseball card, as they say, that jumps out and you go, oh, my gosh, I never realized he did this. Right. 2,300 hits. It just – the numbers aren't there for a guy who played nearly 20 seasons. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, too, as I look at it, and I mentioned to you the Hall of Fame statistics that they have at the bottom of the baseball reference pages, and without getting too far off into the weeds and making our show an hour about Lou Whitaker, <laughs> uh, but you look at the black ink and the gray ink and the Hall of Fame monitor, and typically you know, there's average scores for these, and Whitaker's black ink and gray ink, which is a lot to do with uh, statistics that he led the league in, things of that nature, it falls woefully short of the right. average Hall of Famer. He's got a one in black ink, a one. I've never seen this before. Average Hall of Famer at 27. Gray ink, he's at 31. Average Hall of Famer, 144. But his Hall of Fame monitor, uh, likely Hall of Famer, has a score of 100. His score is 92. And his most similar player, which if they're over 900, means it's a pretty accurate comparison. His most similar player is Ryan Sandberg, who was a pretty good second right. baseman and might have stolen a lot of the attention as far as second base in that decade is concerned in the 1980s. I just, I guess maybe to me to wrap all of this up uh, on Whitaker and to wrap up our starting nine as well, I feel like the 80s has just been a decade of baseball and even the 70s to a certain extent that's been largely either overlooked or forgotten or has been unfairly scrutinized and punished by the huge offensive numbers that came in the 90s and the PED era that followed. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know that it necessarily should mean, oh, well, all these guys should get in now because they've been uh, suffering from the scope of their career has not been looked at in the right light. But I don't know. It it falls in there somewhere for me where I feel like it was a pretty good decade of baseball, pretty interesting decade of baseball. And I just feel like some of the guys that are worthy candidates at the very least have 
really not gotten their just due, at least not yet. Yeah, I think that's fair. You look at some of maybe uh, loose contemporaries and, you know, guys like Joe Morgan, Rod Carew, Ryan Sandberg. Those are all Hall of Famers. And yeah. and to me, if you're getting down to the point where you are the fourth or fifth, maybe even sixth guy at your position that people talk about, are you a Hall of Famer at that point? I mean, again, he was a very good player for a very long time, but only hit over 300 twice in his career. It just to me, the, the numbers just don't jump. Like when you look at some of the Hall of Fame guys and their numbers jump out and you go, oh my gosh, yes, that guy is definitely a Hall of Famer. It just doesn't happen for me with Lou Whitaker. And I don't know if it's because I got a blind spot for him there for whatever reason. But when I look at Joe Morgan and I look at Rod Carew and guys like that, it just, they jump off the page and Lou Whitaker doesn't. Doesn't mean he had a bad career. Doesn't mean he wasn't a great ball player. Just not a Hall of Famer in my eyes. Well, and, and that's a fair way to look at it, too. I mean, it's not about getting everybody in that had a great career or even a good career. It's just a very nuanced thing, figuring out who's going to get into Cooperstown. And I'm just always excited each year to see who these committees are coming up with and guys that have maybe been overlooked in the past and definitely deserving. And there's plenty of them on this ballot, that is for sure. And that is our starting nine. Bill, I appreciate you doing this, and I look forward to each and every week of being able to chop up some baseball topics and I kind of broaden the scope of the podcast beyond just what's going on with the Braves, but also this exciting time of year where it's the hot stove. All the clubs are looking to get themselves ready for spring training and beyond. And of course, making that run through October next year. And, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about again, the winter meetings coming up free agency. I don't think it's going to slog into February like it did last year. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Grant. All right. He's Bill Rowland. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Bill Rowland. That's B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. Bill, look forward to catching up with you next week. Sounds good. Have a great weekend. And that'll wrap us up on this episode of From the Diamond. Thanks again to Bill Rowland. We'll be stopping by each week as we do our starting nine and go through all the baseball topics from across the other 29 teams. And, of course, I'll keep you up to date on all the things going on with the Braves as they continue a very busy winter. And we'll see what happens at the winter meetings out in San Diego. I'll be out there, so make sure you catch all the coverage on 680 The Fan in Atlanta. You can, of course, download the 680 The Fan app and listen wherever you are, and you'll be able to find plenty of things going on as myself and Ben Ingram will be out there covering the winter meetings for you, so be sure to tune into that. I'll send out plenty of links on social media. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews, appreciate it. Keep them coming. Definitely thankful for each and every one of those as we're right around that time of year where we're always focused on what we're thankful for and make sure you're following on social media at from the diamond underscore on Twitter is where you can find the show. I am on Twitter as well at Grant McCauley, G R A N T M C A U L E Y on Instagram at from the diamond, no underscore. I am at Grant McCauley as well on Instagram and every episode of the show and so much more at from the diamond.com. That'll wrap us up for this pre-winter meetings edition here on From the Diamond. Next time we speak, it'll be from sunny San Diego. So I hope you have a great weekend and look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Grant McCauley, and until then, so long, everyone.